What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means completely eliminating carbon emissions from its electricity use all day, every day. It's doing that by buying lots of cheap wind and solar while also backing a wide range of next-generation solutions. Anything from somewhat more widget-driven technologies like electrolyzers and fuel cells and advanced batteries to really larger-scale projects that need to prove themselves out, technologies like next-generation nuclear and geothermal. Adam Forney is a program manager for 24-7 carbon-free energy technologies at Google. Later in the show, he'll describe why geothermal is such an important solution for decarbonizing grids. For more information on Google's zero-carbon goals, go to g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. All right, tell me, tell me all that pillow fort building again. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The key to success. I've got all the, all the noise-blocking pillows around me. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. When we think of renewable energy resources, we usually gravitate towards what we can see and feel. The sun, the wind, rivers and waterways. But one of the most powerful sources of renewable energy is right beneath our feet in the form of geothermal energy or heat in Earth's crust. And most of this geothermal potential has not been tapped. Starting in the 1960s, the United States became a world leader in building large-scale geothermal power plants. That changed in the mid-2000s with the fracking boom. Drillers turned their attention to oil and gas. And as wind, solar, and batteries got cheaper, bankers and developers put their money into those resources. Today, geothermal development around the world has flatlined, but a small legion of clean energy entrepreneurs is working quietly in the background on innovations that could catalyze the geothermal industry once again. One of those entrepreneurs is Tim Latimer, the co-founder and CEO of Fervo Energy. And it's our ambition to scale geothermal power as a carbon-free resource that goes well beyond what geothermal has been able to do to date and really contribute to a 100% carbon-free energy grid. Fervo Energy is a geothermal developer using advanced drilling techniques from fracking in the oil and gas industry to make it easier to find and harness heat underground. For the last decade, geothermal has been passed over in favor of natural gas, wind, and solar. Even finding geothermal sites has been challenging and expensive. It takes a lot of time and money just to locate the perfect pocket of usable heat. But as companies and governments get serious about fully decarbonizing grids 24 hours a day, seven days a week, geothermal is on the brink of a revival. Getting that grid from 80% to 100% is, is by and large going to be a challenge that will be probably the defining challenge of the latter part of this decade and, and beyond. Tim calls the 2020s the geothermal decade. We can't transition to a zero-carbon grid without round-the-clock clean energy resources to supplement wind and solar. And geothermal offers that always-on feature. Tim believes a combination of technology innovation and public attention are setting up a new phase of growth. I think there's so much momentum right now in geothermal that it's actually going to happen, you know, maybe sooner than we thought before. And that's where Fervo comes in. And so geothermal is a unique resource. It's been around for a long time. It's over 100 years, the first geothermal power plant. But historically, it's been really limited to specific geographies, places like uh, Iceland or Kenya or Northern California. And so even though it's meaningful in those different economies, um, it has not really broken out the same way that other energy resources have to having truly global impact. But if we can scale it using new technology and new policies, it can be one of the solutions that gets us to that fully decarbonized electric sector, which is really what we need. And if successful, geothermal actually does have the potential to be as much as that 20% uh, of the electricity sector that actually lets us get the full way there to total decarbonization. I spoke with Tim about how he's combining his expertise in oil and gas drilling with a dedication to solving the climate crisis and using his experience to break open an often overlooked renewable resource. We started with Tim's upbringing in Texas, which was shaped very directly by fossil fuels. 
So I, I am somebody who's very passionate about building things. And I'll say I was born in Houston, Texas. Um, but then when I was in kindergarten, we actually moved back to my dad's hometown, um, which is a rural part of Texas, Riesel, Texas, near Waco. Small town, population of about 900 people. And uh, out in the countryside, I think building was a big part of my life from very early on. Actually, fascinatingly, my my parents built the house that we lived in as kind of an early project. And then my entire upbringing, doing things, whether it was building decks or fences or other work around the house was just like kind of a regular part of growing up and something I got an appreciation for uh, and enjoyment out of very early on. I know you lived near the Sandy Creek coal plant, which was interestingly the last coal plant ever built in the United States. And in the early 2000s, the construction of the plant created this sense of both optimism in Sandy Creek for the jobs, for the economic development, but then also a lot of controversy for the environmental and quality of life impacts. How did it shape your views on energy, if at all? A lot. You know, I think for energy... Most people, uh, you know, flip the light switch and if the power comes on, that's the beginning and end of their thinking about where their energy comes from. Um, And that's probably how I was for most of the time growing up. But then whenever a company proposes building a very large coal plant in your community, it's kind of hard to ignore what what those impacts are going to be. There's positive impacts and negative impacts. I mean, the the positive impacts of that is it brought in so much new revenue and new jobs to our community that we built an entirely new high school and fixed a lot of things and issues that that were there before. But the negative impacts were, you know, I actually was just home yesterday and you can hear the coal plant anytime you step outside for miles around. And it has had a real impact on air quality and water quality and everything that you could imagine. But it's difficult for me to say that that was a good or bad decision for the community because of all the positive benefits. And I think the takeaway I had from watching that debate and watching those impacts in my hometown was really that we can't force communities into these suboptimal choices where it's like, you know, you either have your economy or you have your environment, but you can't have both. And if we can't offer people better solutions, then we're not doing a great job of as an energy sector, as a climate sector, and and really helping people where they are. I know oil played a big role in your life at one point, Almost everyone who you knew worked in the oil industry. What was it like being so deeply immersed in the culture of oil in your formative years? It's interesting. You know, not only did I grow up in Texas, but I went to college and studied engineering at the University of Tulsa. And when I graduated, oil prices were high, gas prices were high. The shale revolution was just taking off. And when from a graduate of the University of Tulsa, myself and almost everybody I knew went into that sector. Uh, and it was an interesting time. I think part of my motivation is I really liked Texas and I wanted to have an opportunity to come back and have a good paying job in my home state. But it was also interesting to be involved in uh, kind of a new breakthrough innovation. And so it was the right career choice for me at the time. Um, and and very interesting to be deeply immersed in in communities and family and friends that are all part of the sector. And it was something I probably would have stuck with for a long time had it not been for a lot of reading I was doing and knowledge about climate change, which really kind of made me revisit what the role of oil and gas was in our economy and our future. What was that like having graduated from the University of Tulsa in mechanical engineering and then being a drilling engineer right out of college, but then starting to read about the impacts of the fossil fuel industry on climate. Tell me more about that. Yeah, it was it was an interesting time because the part of the narrative at the time around oil and gas was also about the idea that natural gas was cleaner than coal, which is somebody who came from a town with a big coal plant into it was with it was something that was appealing to me. And that was part of the story. It was like kind of a win-win. Not only do you have lower cost energy, but you've got cleaner energy because it's displacing coal. And that was a big part of the narrative that attracted me to the sector. I think there were early things that I learned, um, you know, one, both through kind of my own knowledge and understanding of, of climate change and how severe the impacts could be, but also watching uh, the industry shift just during my early years in there, where initially a lot of the effort was around natural gas. And that was kind of the bridge fuel story. And that was that was the narrative around that. But 
when natural gas prices went down and oil prices stayed high, I saw most of the companies pivot and just start drilling for oil. And so a lot of the companies that were promoting this message around natural gas being a bridge fuel, you know, when the economics weren't there, they weren't all that interested in cleaner sources of energy. And that was really an insightful lesson for me that, you know, a lot of times companies and individual contributor roles at companies, you're, you're kind of at the whim of market incentives and things going on around you. And unless you're trying to go for more structural change, you know, you're just going to never be able to drive forward a long-lasting solution that is both cleaner and um, leads to, you know, better economic development. And, and I wanted to work on something that was just, you know, more proactively addressing both of those concerns. How did that interest translate into finding geothermal? Well, one of the first projects I worked on was drilling in South Texas in a field called the Eagleford Field. And in the world of oil and gas, it's actually a very high temperature field. Uh, and we were having issues with dealing with that temperature during our drilling operations. And I was assigned a project to try to identify better solutions and equipment for high temperature drilling. And a lot of the literature from that came from the world of geothermal. And I'd never heard of geothermal at this point, but I was already starting to get very interested in climate, trying to find my role there. And I read some really fascinating early reports about how geothermal was this, you know, unique 24-7 carbon-free resource that could have all this potential, but it mostly laid untapped because of cost and lack of technology. And I started seeing ways that uh, innovative technology around drilling and, and other techniques could actually move the needle in that. And, and I was just very captivated from that from a, you know, problem-solving standpoint and also found it fascinating as a way that it could be my off-ramp into a career that was more climate-aligned. So after years of working as a drilling engineer, where I understand you had the night shifts from 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. in the coldest time of the year, and then you had the 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. shifts during the hottest time of the year. Um, so after, after uh, three years of that, you went to graduate school at Stanford to get an MBA. You wrote an essay about geothermal that got you into the program. Tell me about that essay and how it came to be. Yeah, so it was actually... Very interesting work, actually being out on the rig and, and seeing how things were done early on. But that was right. As the junior person on the rig, you know, you kind of had last pick when it came to shifts and everything else. So I do remember baking in the Texas sun in the summer and then get, get looking forward to winter, only to find out that when it gets cold outside, the junior person swaps over to night shift. So that was always a fun. Oh, did you not know that during the summer shift? You're like, I can't wait. <laughs> no, I just thought I just can't wait for winter, you know, because then I'll finally finally it won't be so so right. hot out during the day. Uh but it's cold at night. <laughs> so yeah, that was a fun lesson to learn as the junior person out there. But I I knew that I wanted to move in this direction to, to tackle geothermal. And I, as I talked to people and explored different career options, I decided that, you know, I wanted to do something really meaningful in this space. And, and there weren't that many job opportunities at the time. And the idea of raising money or like actually driving forward a field innovation in geothermal just seemed so challenging to me. And I didn't even know where to begin. So I, I thought graduate school, um, particularly at a place like Stanford, that's known for entrepreneurship, that's known for research in geothermal would be a great launching pad to try to make uh, something happen in this sector. Hmm. And so going into Stanford, did you know you wanted to start for Vo? <laughs> I don't think so. I think I know, I knew that I wanted to take new innovation ideas and apply them to geothermal or some other clean energy resource. But it was there was definitely a kind of journeyman period there where I got interested in a lot of different things. I, I mean, for one, I wanted to convince myself that there was still even a role for geothermal in the grid because, you know, solar at this time period had just become proven, taking off. And, and there were some real questions about, is there even room for geothermal on the grid? So I looked at that for a while and studied a bunch of different energy resources and, and came around to the idea that uh, geothermal could still play a very meaningful role, you know, especially as, as we target ever uh, more ambitious targets of decarbonization. And the other thing is, I don't think I necessarily started out thinking I would start a company. Um, I wasn't convinced that that was the right way to change. And in fact, even tried to reach out and join other geothermal companies or join other power companies uh, to convince them to look at geothermal and more interest, but just didn't find a lot of opportunity there. And I call myself sometimes a reluctant entrepreneur because after exploring a bunch of other ways, I, I finally had that fed up moment where I thought, okay, if I want things done the way that I think was going to drive the most impact in this sector, I guess I have to do it myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. How far into the two-year program did you make that decision? You know, I, I think I made the decision 
to turn down other job offers and other opportunities midway through my second year in the MBA program. And, and there was actually a meaningful talk that I attended by a lecturer at Stanford and now close friend Dave Danielson, uh, where he talked about how we need to scale a large number of climate solutions to take a, a gigaton or more out of the global economy, and we have to do it by mid-century. And then he walked back through examples of wildly successful companies like Tesla and showed that you know getting to a point where you actually have a global global enough scale to impact carbon emissions uh, takes 10 or 15 years of growth. And then getting to a point where you have a first product in the market takes five to 10 years of prototyping. And then even before that, there's upfront research. And so his point was that, look, if you want to address climate change by 2050 and you got to get a new technology to market to do that, uh, the correct time to start a company or, or a project on it is now. And I was so inspired by that that I you know, turned down other job offers and, and made a decision, like literally walking out of that talk that, okay, Fervo's not a like, let me go dabble in other things for a few years and then come back to this when I'm more comfortable. It was something that I had to start now because there was just an urgency around it that that I really felt from that framing. Hmm. Shout out to Dave at Breakthrough yeah. Energy Ventures. That yeah. is awesome. Yeah, I should say he's he's now been a close friend, mentor, and, and investor for for years. And he's had a, a an important catalytic role in every step of this journey, including the the day one decision to start Verbo. So while at Stanford, people reacted to your idea about starting a geothermal company in two ways. Some, well, most thought it was crazy and they were not shy about telling you so. Uh, but the other said, if you're serious, then talk to Jack Norbeck. Who is Jack Norbeck and how did he become your co-founder? Yeah, Jack Norbeck is uh, co-founder and now CTO of Fervo Energy. Um, we met through Stanford. He did his PhD at Stanford and finished the year before me, but was still around town because he was doing a postdoc at the U.S. Geological Survey in Menlo Park. And the more I articulated this idea to people, that that's what they told me. It was like, okay, it's crazy, but if you're actually serious, you got to talk to Jack. Because Jack had done very relevant research in Stanford's geothermal program in this sector. And, and as I've learned over the years now, he has the exact right kind of demeanor, partnership, um, outlook to really drive forward meaningful change. And so after I had like, I think my 10th person tell me that, okay, you got to talk to Jack. We, we finally arranged for a meeting and, and talked for hours about how we could, you know, start something dramatically different in geothermal. And, and, you know, the rest is kind of history in terms of our, of our partnership. Mm. Tell me about your skills and you mentioned demeanor. How are you the same? How are you complimentary? Yeah, it's it's fun. Jack and I uh, get along very well, and I think we've got a a good sense of what we both do well and what we both don't do well. And so for me, I was the the MBA, which is always funny because I started my career as an engineer. But it seems like once you get that MBA, uh, you're just the business guy in whatever <laughs> room you're in from then on. And so I, I was always working to try to get credibility with different people in the PhD program and other career scientists. And so I think Jack saw that I had some of that credibility, especially because I had the, the field experience, um, but also saw where I really lacked that. And, and so Jack was a, a clear leader in his field in terms of was driving forward new innovations on computational modeling for geothermal systems. So, you know, actually being able to design these these systems and test hypotheses and things before you actually have to spend the money to drill and understand how they work. And so his skill set was exactly complementary to mine. I was kind of the the field guy and and he had that that really fundamental understanding of the science and physics behind geothermal um, and then he's just a, a team player you know somebody that's that uh, I talk about a lot you know entrepreneurship is full of its ups and downs and one of our keys to success is that every time one of us has a big downfall and and there's a lot of them in <laughs> entrepreneurship I can't every single time Jack is always there with a smile and a word of encouragement and and powering through you know the the good times and the bad is something that you've got to have a great team around you for. And that was that's one of the things that that he's just been, uh, you know, we've, we've really clicked in that regard. So you decide to start this company with Jack and just about everyone told you that starting a geothermal company was not feasible. And you told me at conferences, people would literally hold up their palm and then walk away <laughs> when you told them that you were starting a geothermal company. What was the hardest part of starting Fervo? Yeah, in the beginning, I think that, you know, a lot of things in energy have ebbs and flows, and and 
there, there was a lot of enthusiasm in geothermal, you know, in the late 2000s, and there was investment interest that went into it. And there were actually some very meaningful successes from that time period, both commercially and technically. But when you compare it to the success that other clean energy technologies like solar and electric vehicles and batteries had coming out of that time period, you know, geothermal was never quite there. And so a lot of people adopted a mentality of, you know, been there, done that, no need to look at geothermal again. And and a lot of people had not started looking at this deep decarbonization to say, okay, what 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 other technologies do we need or what complements do we need? And I think there was just such enthusiasm around the solutions that did work that it was difficult to get more. And so there weren't that many people investing in climate technologies at that point in time. I mean, it's not that long ago, but 2017 was a very different world for climate businesses. And in particularly, if you want a climate business that was capital intensive, hard tech, and had kind of a been there, done that, we've tried it, didn't work mentality, uh, didn't inspire a lot of enthusiasm for capital providers. So it took a lot of work to even get the first set of yeses and and some really brave people on the financing side to even take a bet on a technology that was really out of favor at the time. Coming up, Tim works to prove the geothermal doubters wrong and the money follows. First, a quick word about our partners. What It Takes is supported by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. At the top of the show, we heard from Adam Forney. He's a program manager evaluating all of the cutting-edge technologies that are reshaping the grid. I get excited about the ways that Google can really help advance these new technologies, especially hardware technologies. Adam is focused on long-duration storage, hydrogen, and a number of clean, firm generation sources such as geothermal. They're really important resources to provide large amounts of energy at something like baseload or close to baseload firm power. They're going to be important to really help backfill the fossil energy that really needs to come off the grid, whether that's gas or coal, depending on the region that you're talking about. Google is partnering with Fervo Energy to help commercialize its novel approach to geothermal that you're hearing about in this episode. Google is a large-scale customer that uses its scale to help startups like Fervo advance their solutions for fully decarbonizing the grid. The idea of, of advancing geothermal in one place and really helping scale it across our portfolio is pretty exciting, and we're interested in that. Google signed an agreement to develop next-generation geothermal power with Fervo, with the goal of advancing the solution in other regions of the world. And as Google helps prove out the technology, it's encouraging others to do the same. I think the other part of the story that's really interesting is that the behemoths in the room also have a vast amount of capability and, and technological skill to actually help support geothermal. I think that they're seeing it as an interesting next generation opportunity increasingly. If you want to learn more about the innovations that Google is backing to achieve 24-7 carbon-free energy by 2030, or if you want to partner with Google, visit g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. What It Takes is also brought to you by Next Tracker. With trackers and controls based on machine learning technologies, NextTracker builds connected solar power plants that keep getting more intelligent. Solar is quickly becoming the cheapest form of electricity on the planet, and NextTracker's technology helps developers lower their cost and boost energy yields. NextTracker is also committed to increasing diversity within the solar workforce. Working with Renewables Forward, Solar Energy International, and the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, NextTracker is educating and training the next generation of climate tech professionals, people from all backgrounds. If you want to learn more about NextTracker jobs, visit nexttracker.com forward slash careers. Jumping a little bit ahead, you closed a 10.5 million Series A round in July of 2019, led by our friends at Congruent Ventures with participation from Breakthrough Energy Ventures, who we mentioned earlier. And then in April of this year, you closed a 28 million Series B, led by Capricorn. But where did that initial capital come from, given how hard it was to secure it? Yeah, and think, I'll, I'll point out, just to make sure they're getting credit there, too, the, the co-lead of the Series A round was also 3 by 5 Partners, which has been a very big part nice. of our journey um, and, and a, a wonderful fund focused on sustainability out of Portland. Uh, the initial capital really came from, uh, you know, a couple different sources. Uh, on the public sector and, and side, we were very fortunate. One, actually, the, the week I was graduating from Stanford, which is one of the areas where I said, like, okay, if this idea really has some some runway to it, I, I, I need to get some some 
you know, validation financially before I leave, you know, in part because student loans were coming due and other things. And so in my last week at Stanford, we were, we were awarded a Tomcat grant from Stanford. That was a very meaningful validation point and gave us some financing to get up and running. Um, and then shortly thereafter, we got accepted into the Activate program, where we were given some runway and the opportunity to work at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab uh, for Jack, my co-founder, and myself. And, and those kind of first believers were a really huge deal. Um, and then the other you know, part of this was we had the person I've already mentioned, Dave uh, Danielson from Breakthrough, uh, took a big leap of faith with us very early on and gave us a, a small pre-seed check that was just enough to get up and running alongside Baruch Future Ventures and, and Joel Moxley. So that was, you know, you just need a couple of people to believe in you to get started. And so it didn't really matter that we got, uh, you know, 10 or 100 times as many no's or doors slammed in our face around the idea of geothermal because we had the people from Tomcat and Activate and, and Breakthrough and others that did believe in us at the right time. So it was just enough to keep us going. So you're now backed by these industry-leading investors that you just mentioned who believe in you and believe in your technology. What is unique about Fervo's tech that allows you to access previously untapped geothermal resources? Yeah, so probably best if I back up and explain a little bit about how geothermal works here, because that's not something that everybody thinks about day to day. So geothermal, at the end of the day, is about identifying places that are geologically suitable for geothermal energy development, which typically means that you have elevated geologic temperatures driven by faulting or volcanic activity or elsewhere that you can drill into and pump cold water down injection wells, uh, have it heat up in the geothermal reservoir, and then return to the surface as steam. And you can capture that steam to create electricity. And since you're using the natural heat of the earth to um, power your turbines at the surface, there's no emissions associated with geothermal development. Um, and so that's all great. And like I said, it's been around for 100 years in hot spots like Kenya and Northern California. It works fantastic. But what we've seen is, is the industry's tried to expand beyond to just these less than ideal geologic locations. It's been very challenging for technology and cost to keep up. And the biggest barrier is actually what we call dry hole risk. Not every well that you drill is successful. And these wells can cost $5 million or more to drill. And so if you're in a competitive sector like power and you're funding a bunch of $5 million plus projects that go nowhere, you're not really going to compete for very long. And so if geothermal is going to be successful, we have to be a lot more repeatable in our development. So what Fervo has developed is, you know, sort of inspired by my time in the oil and gas industry with the shale revolution is a suite of technologies that makes that development process a lot more predictable. And there's a lot of different innovations we've worked on, but probably some of the high level ones is one is drilling horizontally, which is something that the oil and gas industry has gotten very good over the last 15 years. So a traditional geothermal well is drilled mostly vertically. You've got like an eight inch hole that you put 8,000 feet down in the ground, and you kind of hope that you find enough resource there for, to support geothermal development. But that's a very hit or miss proposition, as I've already said. So if you can go instead go down 8,000 feet and then turn horizontally and drill for another 5,000 feet or 10,000 feet, the likelihood that that well ends up being productive goes up tremendously. And actually adapting the technology to make that a reality in geothermal, which is operates very differently than oil and gas, uh, has taken a lot of engineering work. But it's something we're very confident and and, and really think it's going to move the needle on. Uh, and then there's other things about you know more sophisticated data acquisition. Um, so one of the things we've worked on for a while is the use of distributed fiber optic sensing in a downhole environment. So you can actually measure with precision where that flow is going, what are the pressure changes, and create a map of the subsurface that actually allows for a lot more optimization than has been previously around. So this is just a couple examples, but ultimately what Fervo does is we combine these technologies in a way that allows our success rate in drilling to be much um, higher in a what much wider set of geologies so we can go and develop in new places that used to be hit or miss and we can just be a lot more consistent about that and that ends up translating to a much lower cost and much larger resource base than just conventional geothermal development. I think when some people think of geothermal drilling, they think that, yeah, these holes are, you know, feet or even dozens of feet wide, but you said it's just, it's less than a foot. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's they're they're narrow they're narrow, narrow pipes that we're putting in the ground, but we we've got to drill them very very deep. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I should also specify here for what Fervo does is really utility scale power generation. So we're really putting these these um, new pipes and wells into the ground thousands of feet down. Uh, I'm a big fan of efforts like Dandelion in terms of geothermal residential for for heating and cooling and other applications. But those are you know pretty different. We really are talking about something here where we're going miles down into the surface of the earth, uh, and and it and it's a a very challenging engineering problem, but one that we've got a lot of sophisticated technology to solve. You spoke to this a bit earlier, but looking at geothermal more broadly, what is geothermal's role in enabling a 24-7 carbon-free grid? Yeah, so geothermal has a really strong attribute among renewable energy resources that it works 24-7. And what we find is that as we try to push beyond to deeper levels of decarbonization, that actually matters more. So if you think about the most ambitious climate targets and renewable portfolio standards in the U.S. going back a few years ago, they were all 20 percent or 33 percent or, or, you know, somewhat somewhat low hanging fruit targets and um, that were ambitious at the time. But then solar and wind got so cheap that we were able to meet those targets. Um, And at those levels, it doesn't really matter kind of when you're producing because you can absorb that energy generation uh, and hit a you know, 20% target with a variable renewable energy resource. But whenever you start talking about bills like SB100 in California, that not only established a 100% target for 2045, but a 60% target for 2030, that requires you to decarbonize not just daytime hours, but nighttime hours, and and not just summer, but winter as well. And obviously, batteries are going to be very meaningful in that. But what grid modelers show again and again is that you got to have something that works in that 24-7 role. So our role on the grid is providing that backbone, that flexibility, that always-on nature from a carbon-free resource that really helps underpin a lot of the accomplishments from other carbon-free energy resources to actually generate a, a low-cost solution, a low-cost system that is, is fully decarbonized. You have spoken about the importance of a just transition to ensure that workers in the fossil fuel industry have secure and well-paying jobs in a world that doesn't rely on fossil fuels. How do you see geothermal playing a role in this transition? And then specifically, what is Fervo doing and what do you want to do to enable that? This is something that's very important to me. As, as you know, I'm from Texas, worked in the oil and gas industry, went to the University of Tulsa, which produces a lot of the leaders of the oil and gas industry. And for me, just transition has never been a theoretical topic. I mean, we're literally talking about friends and family members. And as the industry's already gone through boom and bust cycles, I have had a lot of friends that have already been laid off once, twice, three times. And if we're going to be successful in addressing climate change, we're going to have to continue to shift away from fossil fuel resources. And so it's always been important to me that we're not leaving communities behind and when, as we make this transition that we must make. And I'm excited about geothermal because just like in my own career journey, uh, it's something that does leverage a lot of the skills and tools and equipment of people who've made their career in the oil and gas industry. And so for us, we're really trying to tap into that expertise and skill. And what you find is there are a lot of people who joined the oil and gas industry for a whole host of reasons, but are very passionate about climate now. And giving them an opportunity to have a really a job where they can leverage the skills they already have, but do so for a clean energy resource is really important for people to picture themselves in this energy transition. And I think ultimately that's going to end up being the fair thing to do, the right thing to do, and actually accelerate you know buy-in and political will for clean energy solutions. And so at Fervo, we're very meaningful about giving people from the oil and gas industry an opportunity to work with us. I think over half our team are people who started their career in one form or fashion in the oil and gas industry. So we're very excited to employ those people directly, um, especially as these folks often have a, a deep passion around climate. Uh, we also want to work with partners that, you know, everything from the, you know, accountants to field hands to our um, contractors, you know, those are all folks that if their livelihood has been made in oil and gas, you know, they now can see a new livelihood in the clean energy transition. And so uh, that's always been a very core part of my personal mission and also what we're trying to accomplish at Furbo. Speaking of partnerships, earlier this year, you launched a partnership with Google, the first ever corporate geothermal agreement. How did this come about? What are the goals of the partnership? And tell me about your go-to-market strategy more broadly. Were you like, our go-to-market is Google? Or was it was it uh, more than that? Great question. And, and Google has been a really important partner of ours for a while now. And, and I think that I talked earlier about 
you know, convincing myself that there was a role for geothermal. And I really did a lot of work on figuring out what the role would be on the grid. And five years ago, there weren't that many people that agreed with me. Um, but then actually in December of 2016, Google released a white paper about how they were on the cusp of achieving their 100% renewable energy goal and were already thinking about what what's next. And they mentioned this 24-7 carbon-free initiative, which is quite a bit different from a 100% renewable energy initiative because it's actually about matching every single hour of your demand um, with clean supply. And there was just a one-off reference in there to how geothermal could be a solution. And after years of not seeing geothermal anywhere as a solution, I got very excited about it. And we put them kind of in our target as a, as a potential customer and, and really started diligently building a relationship with them um, from that time. And as Google has gotten a lot more ambitious about their 24-7 carbon-free uh, initiative, we found a great opportunity to work together on that. And, and really at Fervo, when we think about go-to-market, we do have a firm belief that this is where the world is going and the world needs a solution like geothermal, but not everybody is going to realize that at the same time. So having customers like Google that do this analysis first and early and provide an opportunity for adoption for a new technology like what Fervo is developing is, is huge for us. And we're just seeing that come around more and more as, as Google's leadership is, is driving other corporate buyers to, to relook at how they buy electricity as well. And it's also very important for us to see um, you know, policy support for, for these initiatives as well. So there's now nine states that have a 100% um, carbon-free electricity target in law. And those states are places where we find a lot of really productive conversations with potential customers because they're the ones that are actually thinking about this full decarbonization. So going to these groups that are trying to get ahead on the decarbonization journey is, is really a core part of our go-to-market strategy. After the Google partnership announcement, have or, or before, had you gotten interest from other seemingly globally leading tech companies? Yeah, and I think every company is on their own journey here, and and I think that um, it, it really depends on where people are and what their ambition is at the time. And I think every company is taking different approaches, and I think we do need a variety of approaches because not every solution is going to work, and we need to we need to see this. But I, I think one thing that we all also believe too, when it comes to you know a place like. Hawaii or California that put these 100% clean electricity targets in or a corporation like Google that's out ahead of the curve in terms of setting a 24-7 carbon-free uh, initiative is, is we don't think of these organizations or jurisdictions as unique. We just think of them as first. And it's important for us that they end up showing leadership that other people can follow and that we're successful in working with them so that other people do want to follow that. And, and we really think this is where the world's going, but it's just going to take different companies and organizations, you know, kind of their own time to, to set the right targets for themselves at, you know, depending on where they are in their decarbonization journey. Mm -hmm. Speaking of first movers, do you see Fervo as a first mover or a fresh mover? Because, you know, the, the geothermal industry, it was there, but Fervo is reinventing what it looks like based on the technology that you've been able to adopt from the oil and gas space. So how do you see Fervo? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. And if you think about energy technologies, or really any technology, a lot of them exist for a very long time before they really have their breakout moment. And having your breakout moment requires a confluence of policy and market and technology factors that are really hard to line up. And we think we're there for geothermal now. And we call this, we're calling the 2020s the geothermal decade because we see these three factors, policy, finance, uh, and market, and, and then technology line up for the first time in, in a long time. And, and it's really our time. And we couldn't be doing what we're doing at Fervo had there not been, you know, innovative DOE research on geothermal development going back to the 70s, had there not been great private sector leadership in, in geothermal going back over the last several decades. But it really is an inflection point for the industry where it's where it's time to take off. So I, I think we are, yeah, fresh mover would be a good way to say it. But I think that's true of any industry that's experiencing its breakout moment. And, and what we want to be is... Uh, is create an ecosystem around geothermal that startups and policymakers and buyers that uh, that you know we help catalyze, but you know goes well beyond what we're doing at Fervo. I mean, if we're going to be successful in decarbonization, this has to be a, a huge effort. We just want to prove that it's uh, realistic and profitable and and a good solution, so that we can really accelerate development of geothermal around the world. Paint a picture for me. Where is Fervo today? 
how many people on the team? You have this partnership with Google. What what else can paint a picture of of where you're at? Yeah, so we are 20 people in the full-time team, although that's growing. And I, if I could put in a plug, always check out our website because we are hiring and continuing to hire. Uh, and we have gone through what I would call, you know, the classic uh, technology scale-up journey over the last couple of years, where we started with computational modeling and we moved to lab-scale studies and field studies and and have done now some very successful field tests that validate uh, our ability to, to, to boost production and, and uh, really do have success in, in a novel way in, in geothermal. And, and we're now really shifting to that go-to-market plan right now. So that starts with um, different uh, you know, pilot projects like the one we are doing in partnership with Google, uh, but then goes beyond to, to building a lot of new geothermal and, and working on our own and with partners to bring a lot more megawatts to the grid. And I think as we think about our journey, and I, again, if you look at how other technologies have scaled up well, the, really the, the, the hard work and a lot of the hard work is done when you come down the learning curve, get enough proof points to get everybody excited about it, where... Um, you know, we want to get to a point in the next several years that people can look at a geothermal project and finance it and buy power from it and and green light it uh, and thinking, oh, yeah, that's old hat. You know, this has been done before. And and that's when you really see deployment happen at a large scale. And so that's really our main endeavor is to is to let's get this to something that is proven and trusted by people so that we can really put um, our foot on the gas in terms of growing this industry much more quickly. So we're, we're ready to succeed when the world needs this kind of power. It's often the case that startups pivot, especially as it relates to their business model, at least once, if not twice or more in their, their journey. Uh, what is Fervo's business model? Have you figured it out? And do you expect that it'll continue in its current form? We have found found some success with our with our business model, and I I think ultimately uh, to simplify, you know, if you can bring the geothermal resource to to market um, reliably and in a cost effective manner, there's going to be no shortage of ways that you can work with different organizations. You know, existing geothermal operators, customers who want new geothermal, you name it. And so I think that's really what we're working on is just making sure we can do that consistently and repeatedly and cost effectively. And there's going to be all kinds of opportunities out there. Um, I think one thing that excites me about the geothermal sector that people may not be aware of right now is there are new business opportunities within the world of geothermal that we couldn't have even imagined when we started Fervo just a few years ago. And so there's now huge efforts on mining lithium directly from geothermal brine, um, which is going to be very important to powering grid-scale storage from batteries and the electric vehicle revolution and elsewhere. Uh, there's also things like what's happening with the Climeworks facility in Iceland, where the largest uh, direct air capture facility in the world is co-located at a geothermal plant because it's great, you know, it's important that we power those energy-intensive facilities with carbon-free power. And so I think one of the things that's very exciting me, both as, as the leader of Fervo and as a participant in the geothermal sector, is as the clean energy economy demands new solutions from new materials to new technologies that what we provide, which is, you know, reliable, round-the-clock, renewable energy and renewable heat, is just going to continue to find more and more uses uh, across a, you know, wide variety of applications in the clean energy economy. What was the single hardest day at Fervo thus far? Yeah, you, you know, there, there's been a couple times in our journey where we have worked for months or years on a new project or a new initiative um, and then had it be wholeheartedly canceled, like literally on the day that we thought we were going to, uh, you know, move forward with the next steps on something. Uh, And and that's one of the things that I think is hardest about um, entrepreneurship in, in general is just seeing something that you've worked on for so long uh, just get canceled for, you know, <laughs> irrational or idiosyncratic reasons outside your control. And I think that our hardest days at, at Fervo have been um, seeing months of work just evaporate into nothing and then trying to figure out, like, okay, what's what's next? And do we really have the energy to do a second version of this all over again? Uh, it, you know, with those kind of scars from seeing something evaporate like that. And that's happened to us a couple times, both, you know, commercially and from a technology standpoint. And and it's one of the ups and downs that's always hardest to come back from, where you really need to, you know, rely on a on a 
strong team to to kind of see through the 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 challenges. Hmm. Is there something that you've learned from that experience that you think you could do differently to avoid it moving forward? Or do you think this is just the name of the game? It's going to happen. We have to deal and move on. I think that, you know, every company is different. But what I would tell people from our experience building a technology intensive company that is in a, you know, regulated industry like power and, and energy development um, is that you are never going to come close to having control over your own destiny. And the advice I give to people in our part of the sector like this is that there's really only one thing you can control when you see these challenges, and that's how many options you have. And I think these lessons of that we've seen where we've had to start over from scratch a couple times because our plan A didn't work has really informed something we say at, at uh, Fervo a lot, which is exactly what I just said. The only thing you can really control is how many options you have, because there's just going to be reasons that you will never predict uh, about why something isn't going to work the right the first time. And I think that's something we try to stick to is, is, you know, always having like a healthy amount of paranoia about the many ways that your project, your plan A can, can go awry and having a plan B and C and D in the works so that you're not starting over from scratch each time. And that's always not the easiest thing to do because you always just want to work on the shiny object in front of you. But, uh, it is really the only way to survive when when you're in an industry where so many things can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a person with control issues, that can be a hard <laughs> a hard concept to grasp. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, were there any moments that Fervo got close to closing? You know, within hours, days, weeks, months. Oh yeah, I had a an opportunity where where you know got a fully signed, fully finished document sent to me for signature. Uh, I signed my thing. We sent it back to the group that sent it to us, um, and they changed their mind after they had already sent out a final signature. And it was something that we had literally been working on for for twelve months, and and we got no real explanation. And and they came back to us with an entirely different deal uh, after they had already sent out a final signature document. And and it was you know good lesson as a startup. You know we th- th- I, I joke with people that only the paranoid survive, and and you learn after a while to not celebrate when when certain things happen, but only to celebrate when the deal is executed, the results are in, the money's in the bank, you name it, because um, it is a it's it's tough. And and when you're trying to do a startup, I mean the, there's a full confluence of forces that can slow you down or, or kick you off track. And, and they are always surprising. That's one I'm never going to forget, uh, you know, signing a document, waiting for the countersign because they're, the other party is the one that sent it out. And then just crickets, it, you know, anything can happen. Wow. I almost want you to name names just so that <laughs> entrepreneurs can be aware, but I won't do that to them. Yep. Um, but you can tell me after. <laughs> Uh, what was the single best day of Fervo thus far? Oh, I, you know, I, I think the thing that I get the most enjoyment out of at Fervo is the team we work with. Uh, and honestly, like, especially when you're an early startup, convincing somebody to to join you on a journey is not trivial. And so I, I don't want to like single out any employees, but, you know, starting at the very beginning with, uh, you know, my co-founder Jack, whenever I, you know, formally said, Hey, why don't, why don't we do this together on to certain employees that, um, you know, in the recruiting process, I, I think one thing we tried to do early on is, is you never want to negotiate against yourself, you know, right. You always want to go after the best person in the world. And if they're overqualified or too cool to join you, you know, that's their decision to make. And, and we try to stick to our, to our, uh, our instincts on that. And we've gone out and tried to recruit some people that honestly, we, especially in our early days, we had no business, uh, trying to recruit. And I remember, um, having some of the people who are on our team now say yes, uh, to us when, when, when we asked them to join, you're like, come again. Yeah. And me trying to keep a poker face of, Oh, <laughs> right. of course you're joining. And then afterward, just like doing a <laughs> dance. Cause it's like, wow. And I, I think that my, you know, the, the getting validation from somebody, who believe so strongly in your mission that they're willing to quit their their day job to join join up with you is still the thing that I think is most exciting for me. And getting to see that happen over and over again as we grow our team has just been, I mean, probably my favorite experience so far. How has your leadership style changed, if at all, since you started the company four years ago? That's a tough one. I, I think um, 
you know, starting this company as an engineer and as somebody who did a lot of the technical work early on, uh, and really all the work, because when you're when you're a small company, I mean, there's just nobody else to do it. It, it is odd taking things that you've worked on for months or years or always thought about and then handing them over to somebody else to to take them on. And I think that one thing that I talk about with a lot of my peers that is really hard is that actually like letting go and delegation and, and getting to the point where you're like, no, I hired these people because they are the best in the world at what they do. I don't need to be doing this anymore uh, is interesting. And you also get to a feeling where where I think if you're doing your job right as CEO, sometimes you wonder, what is what am I even doing <laughs> to, to help the team? Because you end up, you know, just kind of delegating and, and other things. And I think actually changing from a position where I'm the one running the models and I'm the one putting together the plans and everything else to not doing any of that has been a difficult learning journey and requires a lot of trust and, and, you know, faith in your team and everything else. And it's not always the easiest thing to get right each step of the way. On a personal level, I know you are a partner, not a parent. Uh, what has it been like being a partner and a founder at the same time? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, doing something like this takes uh, a lot of work, as you could imagine. Um, but I think I've been very fortunate to find the right partner. Uh, my partner is a very ambitious person as well. She's somebody who has uh, devoted her career to kind of impact first in education, the way I've really thought about climate. So we thought, we, I don't know, sometimes we debate if climate or education is more important. And I, I can't <laughs> tell you, I can't tell you what's the right answer is, but, you know, she's an executive director at the Department of Education in Texas and wakes up every day thinking about um, how to make the students of Texas lives better and, and manages a team through all the ups and downs. And so I think one thing I've been very fortunate in is to have a partner that is, um, you know, pushes me on ambition and impact uh, to kind of keep me motivated and have somebody to be a sounding board with on all these challenges. So you're building a company in a sector that has long been ignored, as we've spoken to, but Geothermal is now getting some attention again. What advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs who are trying to do similarly really difficult things? Yeah, I'd say uh, join join geothermal. The more the the more the merrier. I think I think industries benefit when there's a whole ecosystem, and there, we need a a whole host of different solutions to 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 bring to bear. And I'd say that's true across the entire climate sector. And I'll echo something that I often repeat, which is that there's never been a better time to be a climate entrepreneur. I mean, the forces are aligning right now from a capital side, from a market side, from a policy side, from a consumer side, uh, in just a way that we've never experienced before. So if you're thinking about doing something big, you know, now's the time, whether that's starting something new or joining something new or change from within, um, you know, there's no time to waste. And and I, I don't think you're going to regret jumping into something you're passionate about. Well said. Where will Fervo be in five years? Our ambition is to is to really, I'd like people to say renewable energy, solar, wind, and geothermal. And I want us to be so successful in proving out that uh, geothermal is effective, that geothermal has a unique attribute to the grid, that, you know, we're not the forgotten renewable anymore. And, and I think in five years, if we can realize that, then I think everyone will realize that uh, total 100% decarbonization is a lot closer in our sites than we thought because there's just a wider set of tools to get there. And, and I think if we've led that charge at Fervo, that's, you know, that would be our wildest ambition to, to make that a reality. We're going to move into our high voltage round. These are quick questions, quick answers, quick meaning like five second answers. Starting with Tim, if you were an animal, <laughs> what animal would you be and why? I think I would say an, an otter. Uh, and I've always been fascinated about how much fun otters look like they're always having. And I think that's something I like to keep in mind. I, yeah, that's my ambition too. I want to have as much fun as otters seems to be having all the time. Love it. What inspires you? It's cliche, but everybody always says that you know, you are the sum of the people you surround yourself with. And I think the fact that I have a partner and also friends that are trying wildly ambitious things all the time, like makes what I'm seeing do a lot more doable. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Oh, I don't think I could. I, I think I'm doing <laughs> the thing that I love that I've had. And I've been thinking about doing this for so many 
years. Uh, this is this is this is it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Oh, I I think my parents. I mean, everything from giving me that opportunity growing up to do things and build things and have fun and learn to them. Uh, you know, I, many things I love about my parents, but one unerring thing that all they always said was that, you know, Tim, your career choice is to follow whatever you're most passionate about. And they never pressured me to do anything other than to do something I enjoyed. And I, I think that has given me a lot of confidence to, to chase down what I want to do. What is the best investment you've ever made? Uh, I worked really hard to make sure I was in a good position to get into graduate school at Stanford because I just couldn't fathom how I would raise the money or make the change that I wanted from the position I was in at the time. And I saw that as the avenue to do it. And while I was working a job, you know, making sure I had my essays done and the test scores done and everything uh, took a lot of work, but um, it did open the doors that kind of led led to uh, me doing what I am now. So good investment of my time. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? You know, I, I used to think that, especially in, a, in doing a broad problem like climate change, that there were real concrete right and wrong answers. But I think that uh, one thing I've looked at from reading, you know, it's fun is to go back and read climate change reports or EIA studies from like 15 years ago and just seeing how many things were missed. And then just like pausing myself mm. whenever I'm like a big doubter on something and, and realizing that like, Oh, a lot of people look very foolish on different things. And so I don't know if I'm going to name any like specifics, but I think just keeping a much more open mind about the fact that this is a very odd sector that anything can happen in is, is, a, is, is something I've really tried to get a lot better at. Mm -hmm. When are you your best self? Uh, when I'm problem solving with a smart team. What is your worst trait? Oh, man. Uh <laughs> Uh, this is like a, a, a tough interview question. Um, exactly. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man, I wish I could sleep better. That's probably my worst trait. I get I get cranky and I don't I I don't sleep as well as I should, uh, and 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 that that's led to some bad outcomes. So that's probably my worst trait. <laughs> mm. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Uh, let's get more climate solutions to market faster. I I think there's. Um, uh, there's still such a huge gap between all the exciting momentum we have and, and the level that we need to get to. And I don't think people have really realized that yet. A lot of people. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Oh, my mom, for sure. <laughs> I think she's, she's, she's always been, um, a big supporter and a big fan. And, and I know she's going to listen to this and, and, uh, I, I, I hope she appreciates me giving her the shout out. <laughs> I'm sure she will. Uh, what is your best quality? Uh, I, maybe I think the same thing that is when I feel like I'm my best self, which is just, I, I think I actually, I, I enjoy, and I think I'm good at problem solving things with a smart team and, and, um, I, I enjoy it and I think I, I do well at it. And, and that's something that I always aspire to. Mm. Is it hard to ask for help? And if so, what is the hardest kind of help to ask for? Oh, no, it's not hard to ask for help at all. I, I, think, <laughs> <the> that's, <laughs> way. I think that's one thing that, that every entrepreneur should let go of immediately. Uh, if you're doing something mission-driven and, and ambitious, people want to help you so much. And, and, and I, I've very rarely been in a situation where I haven't gotten help when I've asked for it or where I've been embarrassed by, by something for asking. I, I mean, just let, just let go of that. You're not going to be a successful entrepreneur if you're not willing to tell people, Hey, I I'm bad at this. I don't know what to do here. Please help. Uh, and just get, get over the ego part of it. I totally agree. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They don't focus enough on their people. Hmm. If you really knew me, you would know... How much fun I get in the outdoors. <laughs> Success is... Driving forward meaningful change in the world. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... Started what I'm doing sooner. I've never regretted taking an action too quickly. I've, I've always regretted waiting too long. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be... Putting geothermal back in the conversation. <laughs> I'm most proud of... Uh, my team and what we've built at, at, at Fervo and the, the way we get along together and the way we tackle problems together. Last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is... Oh, man. Uh, 
getting told no over and over and over and over again and uh, still looking for that next path forward. Mm-hmm. Tim, I have so enjoyed this interview, getting to know you better. I was already inspired and impressed by who you are and what you're doing, but um, having gotten to know you better through this interview, I, I am even more so, and I'm so happy that you're in the world and doing what you're doing in the world. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. And, and right back at you, everything that you're doing in your leadership in the sector and and this podcast, I've been an avid listener for years. So it's a delight to be on it and, and uh, very appreciative of, of your time to, to host me today. You too. You too. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Latimer, co-founder and CEO of Fervo Energy. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank Google for their support of the show. Find out how Google is accelerating the deployment of next-generation clean energy with its 24-7 carbon-free goal. Learn more by following the link in the show notes. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading global corporations to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in clean energy, mobility, and climate. Powerhouse Ventures backs founding teams building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. And we are hiring. Powerhouse is hiring a vice president of strategy and operations and a head of business development. And Powerhouse Ventures is hiring a partner or a principal. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. You can follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse and follow me at Emily Kirsch. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Jamie Kaiser, Alexandria Herr, Rye Story Fisher, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs> <laughs>